I invite you to turn with me again to the book of Hebrews as we continue our journey through this wonderful letter beginning in chapter 1. As you're turning there, have you ever had a great experience that profoundly impacted your life and then tried to explain that to someone else? Maybe it was a great vacation to a beautiful place or or perhaps a a severe trial that you went through in your life or continuing to go through that really affected your daily life. Or maybe it was a near miss of some kind where you were almost severely injured or even, even killed and yet walked away unscathed. These kinds of experiences are typically so impactful and come with such an array of thoughts and emotions that it's frustrating to try to explain them to others in words. The more you try to put the experience into words, the more you realize that you simply are not going to be able to convey the full truth of what took place in a way that really does it justice. Well, that's essentially how I have felt ever since we started studying the book of Hebrews. Because when you study the magnificence and grandeur that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then try to convey the fruit of that in, in words, it's impossible. If it's impossible to accurately convey to you in words the way I felt, for example, when I witnessed the sunset in Hawaii or when I stood at the base of the Grand Tetons outside of Yellowstone National Park, then how in the world am I going to explain to you about the one who made them? And yet that is the task before us. We have the privilege over the next 45 to 50 minutes to dive into God's word and to contemplate together the very Son of God. Understand that nothing else that you have done this week or will do this week is more important than what we will do now. There is nothing grander or greater than looking at the person of Jesus Christ. So may we all give our full attention to God's word this morning as we look again at this great theme, the superiority of Christ. That is the theme that stands over our entire study together. If you haven't been with us, turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 1 if you're not already there. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 as we've been making our way through these great truths. Beginning in verse 1, the author writes, God, after he spoke long ago to the prophets, to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. If you've been with us in our study of Hebrews, then you know the basic sketch of what we've seen so far. But let me just catch you up to speed if you haven't been with us. We saw initially two stages of God's divine revelation. Stage one was in verse one, and we call that God's initial revelation, that the Old Testament revelation that came from God through the agency of the prophets. They gave the word of God verbally and then wrote it down. But that brought us to stage two of God's revelation, beginning in verse two. We call that God's final revelation, which came to us in the person of his son. God took on flesh 
and lived among us, the great Emmanuel. And we have God's final and complete revelation in the Son. That is the theme that we've been looking at. God's final and complete revelation has been given through his exalted Son. Now, in case we had any questions about just how exalted the Son of God is, the author of Hebrews gives us seven descriptions of the Son's superiority. Specifically here in context, his superiority over the prophets. Last time we looked at the first five of those seven descriptions, and we'll look at the last two this morning. Let me just remind you of the descriptions we've seen so far. Description number one, Jesus, the Son, he is heir. That is, as the Son of God, He is the heir of all that belongs to the Father. He is the supreme owner and ruler over all things. Last week, we we also learned that mysteriously, because we are in Christ, we share in this great inheritance that one day we will be with Him in His kingdom and be able to live there as He reigns as King. The second description of the Son is that He is Creator. Absolutely everything that exists in the universe is his not only as heir, but as creator. Every molecule that exists came into existence through the Son. The Father created through the agency of his Son. Third description, he is God's glory displayed. The Son perfectly displays the glory of God. As the God-man, Jesus lived a real human life in which he perfectly displayed to all who could see the glory of God in every word and every deed. We see the character of the Father in the Son. Specifically, we know that we see the character of the Father in the Son because of the next description, number four. He is God's nature incarnate. He shares the divine nature. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share the divine essence or nature. Though they are distinct persons, they are equally God. He literally is God in human flesh. And then the fifth and final description we looked at last time, he is sustainer. Not only has the Son created all things, but the reason that the world continues to operate, the reason that your own physical body continues to operate, is because He wills it to be so by the word of His power. He sustains all things. The world operates as it does in accordance to His command. Now, all of these glorious descriptions are part of what we call the transcendence of God. Let me define that for you. The transcendence is the theological term that emphasizes the distinction of God from his creation and his sovereign exaltation over it. God is is other, as the reformers refer to him. He He is different than us. He is over us. There are aspects of God that are not shared with any other being in the universe. He is transcendent. Alan Cairns talks about his transcendence this way. He says, he is not part of the universe. He's not the sum or the parts the sum of the parts of the universe. He's not the soul of the universe. He is the eternal, uncreated, absolute, self-contained, self-existent, sovereign creator by whose will and power all things exist. They depend on him for their being. He depends on none. We've been looking at this in these first five descriptions. He is indeed transcendent. He is other. He is above us. He is glorious and worthy of our worship and our praise. But dwelling on God's transcendence also sets us up to understand another aspect of God, and that is what we call his 
imminence. Not only is God transcendent, far off, other, different, he has chosen to come near. His imminence is the fact that God has chosen to come near to us, to interact with us, chiefly in the person of his son. And so when we take the transcendence of God and the imminence of God and we put them together, only then can we rightly esteem God as he truly is. It is this conundrum of the God that is transcendent becoming imminent that should affect our thoughts of him, especially at this Christmas season. And with this sixth description that we're coming to today, we see not only that Jesus Christ was imminent, that is near, but we see the chief person or purpose for which he came near. Why is it that Jesus chose to be imminent, to come near to us? Let's look back at the text together. It says, let's go back to verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Now we stopped there last time. He continues on here with a sixth description. When he had made purification of sins. When he had made purification of sins. That is, he is purification for sin. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is purification for sins. Up until this point, our attention has been focused primarily on the truth that in the Son, God has revealed himself to us. But now we're told that the Son came not only to reveal the Father, but to reconcile us to the Father. In the Son, we see the glory of the Father, but that by itself only highlights just how unworthy we are to have relationship with the Father unless something happens, unless someone else acts on our behalf. And so the Son graciously and wondrously comes to us as the God-man so that he might not only show us the Father, but bring us to be with the Father forever. In this, we begin to see certain offices, if you will, that Christ fulfilled in his earthly uh, time, in his earthly ministry. He was, as we've already seen, a great prophet. We've looked at that in previous weeks. Now we see a second office in making purification here, that he was not only a prophet, but he functioned as a priest, which will be a great theme for us in the book of Hebrews. It says, when he had made purification... Understand that the Old Testament law stipulated clearly that it was just the priests who were allowed to make purification by giving sacrifice. The people brought their sacrifices. The priests then took those animals and made the sacrifice to God on their behalf. That was their role. And so here, when the author of Hebrews says that the son made purification, he's speaking of him in this office as a prophet, Now, he just hints at that here, but later, if you've ever read Hebrews, you know we'll get into that very deeply later. He'll explicitly explain that Jesus was not only a prophet, but the priest of all priests, the great high priest, the highest of priests. Now, to understand this idea of purification, we really have to understand the Old Testament. We have to take ourselves back, pretend for a moment that you were a Jewish person at the time receiving this letter in the first century. The Jews understood the concept of purification. If you were a Jew and living under the old covenant, then your whole life was dominated by the theme of purity, of being clean or unclean. As you've read Jesus' interactions even in the New Testament, you see this was a major dominating theme of being pure. 
the law of Moses outlined numerous ways in which God's people were to separate themselves from both the Gentile nations and from sin itself. The way they dressed, the way they ate, the holidays they celebrated, the sacrifices they made at the temple, all of it revolved around in some way this idea of being clean or pure. To be impure or unclean was to be cut off from the people and especially the corporate worship of Yahweh. You were not allowed to come to worship God if you were not pure, if you were not clean. To be allowed back into corporate worship of Yahweh, you would have to go through some sort of requirement that was outlined in the Mosaic law to make yourself pure before God again. Those requirements depended on the offense You can see that in places like Leviticus and Exodus. But one thing was crystal clear. If you want to approach God, you must be pure. No one can come to God and be unclean, be tainted by sin. The greatest offense, of course, to God was not just these ceremonial offenses. It was the sins of the people. The constant, ever-present burden of sin. Now, when we think of getting clean or purifying ourselves from something today, we think of in terms of soap and water or maybe hand sanitizer in these days. But for the Jew, when it came to cleansing from sin, if you asked a Jew, what is required for you to be pure, there was one resounding answer. Blood. Blood. Listen to Leviticus 17.11. This is an explanation of why the Jews were not allowed to eat blood under the Old Covenant. God says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood, by reason of the life, that makes atonement. Purification under the Mosaic law was a bloody business. There was, of course, nothing magical about the blood in and of itself. The blood simply represented the life of the animal, the the innocent, pure animal that had been sacrificed in the place of the sinner. The blood was the symbol of that life. In fact, blood was such a part of purification for the Jews that they were required to sprinkle blood even on objects that were going to be used in the worship of Yahweh. And, of course, when it came to the purification of sin... Blood was always required. Listen to later in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. It says, And according to the law, one may also say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Understand, here's the point. When we read in Hebrews that Jesus made purification for sins, that can only mean one thing. It means blood was shed. But now with that background in mind, consider the person who's credited here as having provided this purification. It is none other than the Son. And when you consider the first five descriptions of the Son, it makes this sixth description unthinkable. The heir and creator of all things. The one who is the radiance of God's glory and shares his divine nature who upholds and sustains all of creation. It was he who made purification for sin, which can only mean one thing. It was his own blood that was poured out to procure this purification. 
This, of course, is the unanimous testimony of Scripture. Listen to Titus 2, beginning of verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Later in Hebrews, he will say this in Hebrews 9, verse 13 and 14, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus, the perfect son of God, took on flesh so that he might perfectly reveal the Father and that he might offer his perfect human life as an atonement for sin. Now we understand how our understanding of God's transcendence causes us to marvel at his imminence. As you think on who the person of the Son is, the more you understand of that, the more you stretch your mind to see the glories of who Jesus Christ is, the more marvelous it will be to you that he came down as a man and then gave his own life, shed his own blood to atone for sin. As we think about these two qualities of the Son, the transcendence of the Son, the imminence of the Son, we come to one conclusion, that is the superiority of the Son. There is none like him. There's never been a prophet like him. There's never been a priest like him. He is superior over all. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul beautifully describes what Jesus did for us. I, I, I love Romans 3. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21, we'll read through verse 26. Every word of this is powerful. Listen. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that is perfect satisfaction of God's wrath, a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. These wonderful words from Paul clarify two things about what we're reading here in Hebrews. First of all, the blood of Christ was able to purify our sin because in Christ's death on the cross, he was a propitiation. He was offered to God as a propitiation. That is a, a, the satisfaction of the wrath of God, making atonement for sin. But secondly, Paul's instruction in, in, in Romans 3 clarifies exactly what the author means when he says that Jesus provided purification for sins. 
Because when we hear that, we might be tempted to think that when Jesus made purification for sins, it was for all sins universally, and therefore all people are just automatically going to be saved. But that would be to misread the text, and it would be to, uh, to, to misunderstand the gospel. Romans 3 makes it very clear that this propitiation, this satisfaction of the wrath of God, is only applied to the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, is what Paul said in Romans 3. It's not universally, automatically applied to all people for all time, but instead it's only applied to the true people of God, those who understand their sin, repent of their sin, and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as their only hope of salvation. That does beg an obvious personal question for you this morning. Was the blood of Jesus that was poured out on the cross purification for your sin. The good news of the gospel is that if you are willing this morning to recognize yourself as a sinner before God who deserves his wrath, his punishment for your sin, and if you're willing to, to come to God confessing your sin and repentance, putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation, the Bible says you will be saved. And this purification that was purchased by Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago will be applied to you. That's the good news of the gospel. But it's not a purification that just automatically comes to you because it happened. We must repent and believe the gospel. Jesus, as our great high priest, made an offering that would surpass every other sacrifice before him. He offered himself that he might then give to those who would believe in him eternal life. Listen to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How about John 10, verses 27 and 30? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you're here this morning and you've never confessed your sins to God, placing your faith in Jesus Christ, as your only hope of salvation. And friend, don't leave this place today without humbling yourself before God, believing in Christ, and then this blood that was poured out will be applied to you. That brings us to a seventh description of Christ here in Hebrews. Description number seven, he is seated at God's right hand. He is seated at God's right hand. Looking back at the text, there at the end of verse 3, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, the author description, author's description of Jesus' purification for sin really has been building up to this verb, he sat down. This is really the main point that he's driving at. The seventh description is, is where we've been going. And this is where grammar is instructive for our theology. Because the, the tense of the verb here on he sat down is something called the aorist tense in Greek. That, that is a completed action that took place in the past. A one-time completed action. So when it says he sat down, it's significant. 
one time he made purification for sins and then he sat down, completed action in the past. Now there, there's two primary implications that I want to bring out about this verb this morning. We'll talk about this a lot as we go through Hebrews. So this is really just an introduction. But there are two things we need to understand very clearly when we think about the fact that after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down. Here's the first implication. Jesus' purification is eternally sufficient. His purification is eternally sufficient. The fact that Jesus is said to have sat down after making purification for sins would have stood out to the original Jewish audience. Why is that? It's because they were familiar with the, the, the priesthood under the Mosaic Covenant. And the Jewish priests of that day were responsible for sacrificing animals, and they never sat down. They never sat down because their work was never done. No sooner had they sacrificed one animal than there was a whole line of other animals to come. And so it was a bloody business, one animal after another after another, no sitting down because the work is not done. That's because the blood of animals could never fully, really atone for human sin. Those sacrifices were always intended to point God's people to an ultimate sacrifice that was needed that could really do away with sin once for all, a sacrifice that could be lasting. When Jesus sits down immediately after having made purification for sin, the author is communicating that this was the true and final sacrifice that atoned for the sins of God's people eternally, forever. When Jesus uttered the words on the cross, it is finished, what he was saying is that I have fully accomplished the work that God sent me to do, chiefly sacrificing myself to pay for the sins of God's people. And he says, it is finished. He doesn't say, I am hopeful. He says, it is finished. I have done it. I have paid the price needed for sins. And then the author here tells us he then sat down. He sits down first and foremost as the one whose work has been completed. This is why we in our Protestant church do not practice the Roman Catholic Mass because under that system, it is, the thought is that every time we, they take of the Mass, the, the Lord Jesus is re-sacrificed for sin. The gospel's better than that. The gospel is that Jesus was sacrificed one time for all. He will never be re-sacrificed. There is no need for him to be re-sacrificed because after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now from this first implication, there are two implications that come with it. Two things we need to understand about this first implication. First of all, Jesus' sacrifice is the only one God will accept. If you're still hoping that somehow God will accept you on any other terms than faith in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, then you will find yourself eternally condemned. If your plan to be accepted by God is, is any confidence in you, even if you're saying, I believe in Jesus' sacrifice, I'm just doing my part and adding that to his sacrifice, friend, that is not the gospel. 
The fact that the Son sat down at the right hand of the Father, making purification for sins, proves that it was accepted by the Father, and it is done, and it cannot be improved upon by us. Secondly, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all our sin, past, present, and future. Sometimes Christians live in a constant state of anxiety because they worry that somehow they will lose their salvation. They understand the concept that the the sins that preceded their confession of faith in Christ are forgiven, but they struggle to understand how can my current sin and my future sin be forgiven. But let me just remind each of us this morning that all of our sin was future when Jesus died for it on the cross. It was all before him. We weren't even born And he sat down immediately after having made that sacrifice on the cross. Understand, this is so crucial for us to understand as Christians. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when you are justified, you become a Christian, God does not give you a clean slate to then start over in your own self-righteous attempts at holiness. No, the gospel is much more than that. Coming to Jesus for salvation is the complete abandonment of any hope ever in me and my self-righteousness. It's getting off of that track of trying to earn anything and admitting I can't. I need the righteousness of another. I need the righteousness of Christ to be applied to me if I'm to have any hope of being accepted before God. So it's not a clean slate and you kind of get a redo, a start over with God. No, it's an abandonment of any hope in self and placing all of our hope in Christ. You see, some Christians live on this roller coaster life in which every time they sin, one of two things happens. Either one, they, they just question their salvation, or two, they go through some sort of self-made ritual or self-punishment, kind of a self-made purgatory. And they replay their sin over and over again, and they get angry at themselves, and internally they beat themselves up and until they feel sort of this quota that, okay, Now I'm ready to be forgiven. Christian, the fact that Jesus Christ sat down after making purification for sin makes both of those responses to our current sin completely invalid if you are in Christ. Listen, the Christian is to live a life of repentance. That is absolutely true. But once we're in Christ, we're not repenting of our sin for salvation over and over again. Rather, we want to remain close in this intimate relationship with God as our Father. And so when we sin as a Christian, it puts distance and tension in that relationship, and we repent in order to be brought back into close fellowship with the Father, but not to become sons and daughters all over again. Our status as children never changes once we are truly in Christ. But while all of that is true, and we'll go into that in much greater detail in chapters to come, there's actually a different implication that's the primary meaning here in this text. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The second implication is Jesus' position is eternal exaltation. His position is eternal exaltation. Remember, he's making this argument of the superiority of Christ, and this sitting down of Christ after he made purification for sins connects to that larger argument. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty 
on high. Notice that it's not just the fact that the sun sat down, it's where he sat when he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now understand, because most of the human population is right-handed, I know there are a few of you left-handers out there, but the majority of people are right-handed. Throughout history, the right hand in certain cultures has been a place of prominence, a place of honor, particularly the right hand of a king. And that's the idea here. To sit down at the right hand is to sit down at the place of prominence. It's ultimate honor, ultimate authority. No higher authority can be given than to sit at the right hand. But this is not just a king. Whose hand is he sitting at? At the majesty on high. That is a, a very beautiful way to refer to God the Father. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father on the highest height of heaven. This is ultimate exaltation, ultimate superiority. But it's not just a word picture that comes from the author's own mind. It comes from Psalm 110. He's thinking back to Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. Listen to Psalm 110. These are the words of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. This is where the author of Hebrews is thinking mentally when he speaks of this son as sitting at the right hand of the father. He's saying the same son that I'm talking about is the one that David was talking about when he said that he would be invited to sit at the right hand of the father, ultimately there to rule. Verse 2, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter. That's, that's kingly language. Now we have a third office of this son. Not only is a prophet, not only is he a priest, we see he is king. We refer to this as the threefold work of Christ. He is prophet, priest, and king. And we will see these descriptions in further detail as we go through the book of Hebrews. But with this description, we've now bounced from back from the imminency of Christ back to the transcendence of Christ. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. He's seated in the, the heights of heaven. So high, in fact, he's not only above all of the prophets and all of, of humankind, he's above the holy angels as well. Look back at the text, verse 4. Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, at first glance, it may seem to us as odd that he brings angels into the conversation. But actually, it's very logically connected when we understand this text from a Jewish perspective. The introduction of angels here is a perfect segue between the theme that we've been looking at in the first four verses and the new theme that will begin in verse 5. So how do angels fit into this context of what we've been discussing over the last few weeks? Well, they fit in perfectly when you understand that the Jews taught that the law was given by God to Moses through the mediation of angels. We see this actually in several places in the New Testament. I'm going to show them to you. In Acts chapter 7, remember this is Stephen right before he is stoned. He's basically giving a sermon to those who are about to stone him. And I want you to see two different places in that sermon. He mentions this idea of, of the law coming through angels. Acts 7, beginning in verse 36. 
This man led them out, speaking of Moses, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who is, was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers. And he received living oracles to pass on to you. Later in verse 52 of that same passage, he says, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Paul says the same thing in Galatians, Galatians 3.19. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So then, the law of Moses was, was said to have come to the prophets, yes, but through the agency of angels. And so now you see the connection between the coming of, of God's word to the prophets and Jesus being superior to them. But not only is he superior to them, he's superior to the angels who were there bringing the word from God to the prophet. But in addition to that, angels were, were highly respected because obviously every time we see them in scripture, they're very glorious beings. When they show up on the scene, it causes a stir. Look at uh, Daniel chapter 8, verse 15. Remember, Daniel was a, was a godly man, and yet notice how he responds when he sees Gabriel. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Eli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, that is Gabriel, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Daniel's response is the typical response that people have when they see an angel. But the truth is, if you think about it, we don't really have that much clear information about angels in Scripture. We have select times where they come and where they give a message, but, but we don't know a ton about angels. And so because of that, there's kind of this air of mystery. And people get really excited. Even today, they get really excited about angels. They like to think about angels. Well, that was happening in this day as well. And as we saw in Colossians, sometimes that fascination went beyond fascination to actual idolatry of worshiping angels. Remember in Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, he said, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. Now, when you add all of this together, the fact that, that the angels were said to have, have been the mediators bringing the word to, to Moses on Sinai, when you have these, these glorious uh, moments when they've appeared to man, and you have even this fascination of angels, you can see how the people had a really exalted view of angels. And the author here now sets out to prove that Jesus, the Son, is higher than the angels. He's higher than the angels. In fact, this is such a key theme for the author of Hebrews that starting with verse 5, which we'll begin with next time, all the way through verse 18 of chapter 2, he's going to argue this point that Jesus is better, superior to the angels. 
But here he proves the superiority of Christ over angels by fleshing out one of the implications of the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is just sort of an introductory statement in verse 4. Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He says Jesus is superior to the angels because of his position of being seated at the right hand of the Father and because of his excellent name. Now, his position we've already looked at. He's seated there at the the right hand of God, the highest place. That brings us now to consider for a moment this exalted name. What is this name that the author refers to? Well, understand in Jewish culture and all throughout Scripture, names carry deep meaning. Sometimes God would declare a prophetic name for someone about some, some way he would use them in their life. Think about when God changes Jacob's name to Israel, for example. But when it comes to Jesus, he's given multiple names. If you think about it, throughout Scripture, there's a lot of names attributed to Jesus. It's because names were given to a, a person to describe certain aspects of their character or the work that they would carry out. For example, before Jesus is born, hundreds of years before he's born, Isaiah says this of the Messiah, Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called, and he lists several names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And so we could list many names for Jesus, but what exactly is the name the author has in mind here? Well, in context, we will see that the name is the name Son. He is the Son, the exalted Son. He's already given it to us all the way back at the beginning, but you'll notice as we get into verse 5, he begins to immediately argue the fact that the Son is exalted above the angels. But the way that he describes this might be confusing for us because he uses the participle having become. Look back at verse 4 having become as much better than the angels. Now, as you're thinking about it, that might strike you as odd. If Jesus is one with the Father and eternally God, then hasn't he always been exalted above the angels? The answer, of course, is absolutely yes. So what in the world does the author of Hebrews mean when he says, having become greater? Well, to understand this, we have to always keep in mind that Jesus Christ is the most unique being in all of existence because he is the God-man, right? In the person of Jesus, we have a fully human nature and a fully divine nature all in one person. And this allows Jesus to do things in his human nature that would be impossible for his divine nature. For example, his divine nature could not have died on the cross for you because God can't die. He died for you in his human nature, right? In the same way then, in his earthly ministry, Jesus was only in one place at one time in his humanity. But obviously, because he didn't give up his divinity, he remained omnipresent in his divine nature. And so, there has never been a moment in which he's been subordinate to angels in any way in his divine nature. But in his human nature, there was a brief time in which he came to earth and he willingly lowered himself. In Philippians, Paul says, taking on the form of a slave to the lowest level. Listen to John 17. This is in the high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying to the Father. says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. 
Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so you see this, Jesus was exalted over the angels in his humanity. He comes down for a brief period of time. He's praying, God, now exalt me back to the place where I belong. He's not saying that he gave that up in his divinity, but in his humanity for a short time, he was lower than the angels. The clearest place that we see this in Scripture is the passage I mentioned earlier, Philippians chapter 2. Let me just read for you again this wonderful description of both the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Understand that what makes the incarnation so incredible, the idea of God taking on human flesh, is that he, he comes down, he stoops down, he takes on human flesh, but not just that, he comes as a man ultimately to die. But not just that, he comes to die the most horrific and torturous death of that time, really of, of, of most of the time periods in human history. I think of, of the different ways that you could die. That would be at the bottom of the list, right? Because it was not just to torture a human being, but to shame them, to mock, make a mockery of them in front of all people. The Son of God came and took on flesh to die that death, the death that it was actually illegal to use for a Roman citizen. This is astonishing humiliation, a condescension to come down to die. And so we see this sort of springboard effect. As he comes down, the lower he goes, the higher he's ultimately exalted by the Father. The Father exalts him to the right hand, highest in heaven, to the point that Paul said there in, in Philippians, that every being in existence... The angels, the demons, humans, everyone who's ever existed will bow the knee to the Son. Now, not only in his divine nature, but in his human nature, the God-man sits enthroned in his rightful place of honor until the day he returns and sets up his rule. If you have any doubts about the exalted status that Jesus now has in heaven, let me remind you again of the words that were read when we began the service. Revelation 5, beginning in verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, 
be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the Jesus we worship. Christian, this is the Jesus who's made purification for your sin by his own blood. And he is now at his rightful place, the right hand of the Father on high, honored as he should be. The angels sing his praises. We sing his praises here, and one day we'll sing it to him face to face. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angel, than any angel. He is the King of kings. So how do we respond? Well, just quickly, let me mention three obvious responses this morning to the text that we've seen. First of all, turn to Christ for purification. Turn to Christ for purification. I would admonish us again not to neglect so great a salvation. The God-man Jesus Christ gave his life as a payment for sin for all who would repent and believe in him. Turn to him today and find forgiveness. But secondly, Christian, rest in Christ for purification. Rest in Christ. Do you struggle with assurance this morning? Every time you sin, do you wonder if perhaps you're a Christian at all? Do you struggle to believe that God could ever really be pleased when he thinks of you? When you sin, do you pridefully refuse to accept the forgiveness of God until you personally have punished yourself, until you feel worthy of his forgiveness? Brothers and sisters, this is not gospel living. We're to hate sin and pursue righteousness. That is absolutely true. But we're to do so in the freedom and joy of knowing that we have already been forgiven, that the price has been paid. And that is the wind in our sails. That's what what promotes our, our pursuit of holiness is the fact that it's already been done. And so we serve him as sons and daughters of the king. John MacArthur has famously said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And that is true. Pursue holiness and obedience, yes. But when you fall on your face, repent, get up, and keep going. Don't wallow in it. It's been paid for. Finally, thirdly, worship Christ as prophet, priest, and king. I want you to spend some time meditating on the threefold work of Christ this week. Meditate on him as the prophet of all prophets. Meditate on him as the priest who has sacrificed himself to purify us from sin and meditate on him as the king of kings who is even now exalted to the right hand of the father and as you draw your thoughts to each of those offices or works of Christ let it result in an overflow of worship we have the greatest privilege on the planet we worship the living God the one true God the one who sacrificed himself for us May we never neglect so great a Savior. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these wonderful truths that we've considered together this morning and the fact that you have made purification for sins. It is, it is done. All that is needed is to humble ourselves in recognition of our need of Christ because of our sin, to come to you repenting of sin placing our faith in Christ alone. God, I pray for any who are here who are not in Christ that today would be the day of salvation for them. 
For those of us in Christ, God, may we relish the fact that our sins are forgiven. May we pursue righteousness and, and holy living, not because we, uh, we're trying to earn something from you or earn your favor, but out of love and admiration for you and what you have accomplished for us. Even now as we come to sing to you, God, may you be honored by our praise and may it come from full hearts who love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.